Hello, everybody, and welcome to a new episode of Wicked Workers. I am Dulce Maciel, and I am Cecilia. So, Cecilia, how was your week slash weekend? You know, it's been a busy time for me. I'm getting ready to graduate finally, and I have a lot of homework, and I'm getting to do some very exciting things. And of course, we'll be sharing all of my experiences in the blog. But um, we just came back from some fun travels. So about a month ago, we went to New Orleans, your first time in New Orleans. What did you think about New Orleans, Dulce? It was a place. I really like New Orleans. I think it's really cool. I forgot. I did enjoy one thing. Um, We got our cards read and um, turns out my life's going to be great. We did get our cards read, and we're definitely going to write that about the about our experience in the blog. And of course, we're going to have a New Orleans travel blog. If it's not up by the time this episode comes out, it will definitely be up sometime in the near future. And then, Dulce, even more excitingly for you, because I know it had been a long time since you've been wanting to go here. We just got back from New York. All the people of New York are going to cancel you now. Uh, we did go to New Jersey slash New York. You see, I was trying to hunt down my bestie for the restie, Jack Antonoff, because we're just that close. And I did get to him. Unfortunately, he was like uh, 20 floors above me. So that was not fun. For those of you who don't know who Jack Antonoff is, he is... Let's see, do you want to explain? Where do I begin? All right. Jack Antonoff originates from New Jersey. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. <laughs> Anyways, he's a producer and he has his own band. And you might have heard some of his uh, productions like uh, Lord's Melodrama, Taylor Swift's discography since 1989, including her, including, including her Grammy Award winning Folklore. And he has um, been a part of the band Fun. Uh, which you should know. And yeah. I took Dulce to Tacos Número Uno and she didn't like it. But we're going to talk about that more in the blog. For 9000 because those were garbage. I think they're delicious. But, you know, to each their own. But we will definitely have a, a blog about it for those who maybe have never looked at our blog. Every now and then we post and we like to talk about kind of our travels. Not like we travel a lot, but we do like to share. You know, sharing is caring. So Dulce... Of course, this season we're talking about our school life throughout, you know, from elementary school to, to graduate school and some of the struggles and, of course, knowing us, funny moments that have come out of being undocumented students. And obviously the challenge of going to college has been one of the biggest hurdles that we have encountered in our educational years. Yes, and I think we have, uh, we've talked about DACA before, about how I had DACA up until 2020, and let's say you still have DACA. DACA stands for Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. It was uh, an executive action by the Obama administration, and it's basically, I believe a lot of things haven't changed about it, but it's for those under the age of 30. But when you can apply once you're 15, you had to have been in the U.S. for a consecutive amount of time. And at the time that DACA was announced and you had to have either graduated from high school or be working or have your GED. And you can't have any kind of like a big criminal background or charges or anything. So anyways, some people don't know, but DACA, there's no path to citizenship. DACA also doesn't give you in-state tuition. On guaranteed in-state tuition or federal aid for school. It only um, gives you a work permit and that work permit can help you get a social security for work reasons only. You can get a driver's license and basically every two years you paid 
was it like 400 probably 500 some dollars now and to renew it so you don't get deported for those two years yeah every two years five hundred dollars now imagine you're a, a parent of three which is what happened for us mm-hmm. so that's like a thousand five hundred every two years like we said daca does not guarantee in-state tuition in some places in some states those who are undocumented can go to college and pay in-state tuition but there are some states that are called locked out states and in those states you have to pay out-of-state tuition but dulce tell us a little bit about how you're able to go to college and your college situation i am able to go to college thanks to a scholarship called ece uh stands for equal chance for education and it's people that have uh, it's for people that have DACA or that don't have a citizenship in the U.S. Basically allows them to go to school. It pays for a portion of it. And you really don't need much as long as you're in good standing with the school. You have a decent GPA or grades or whatever. And you kind of have an idea of what you're wanting to do as a career. Um, they help you with that. For our podcast, I thought it would be a great idea if we talked to somebody from ECE and so they could give us more information. We talked to Vanessa Delgado, who is a part of ECE and who we interviewed. She spoke to us about Locked Out States and her role within the foundation. So here is our interview with Vanessa Delgado of ECE. Well, Vanessa, thank you so much for being with us today. I'm so excited to get to talk to you and get to know you a little bit. So yeah, why don't you just go ahead and tell us a little bit about yourself, just some background. I appreciate you letting me be here. Um, So my name is Vanessa. Um, I was born in Guatemala. Um, So I came when I was two years old. I have an older sister, actually. Um, who is six and a half years older than me. She was like first to go to college. She was like pioneer, um, which is great. Love that for her. Not true for me. I was the first one to graduate. So that was good. I graduated from Trevecca here in Nashville um, in 2018. Um, I have DACA um, and I was in equal education, which we'll talk about a little bit later. Like I'm from Guatemala, my parents are from Guatemala, whole family is there. Um, so it's just like me, my mom, my dad, and my sister here. You guys came in 1998? Me and my sister did. My parents came in 97. I feel like during that time, like late 90s, early 2000s, there was, I, I don't know if there was like a big wave or something, but like so many people that I've met came around that time. Yeah, a bunch of my family, I have some extended aunts and uncles and cousins um, who came right around that time, like when my parents came, um, like 96, 97. But it's because of like other stuff that was happening with the Mala, of just like political turmoil and civil wars, um, which is kind of a lot, but that's why. Yeah, that makes sense. What part of Guatemala are you from? We're from the city, um, Guatemala City. <laughs> I know in Memphis, the Guatemalan population is a lot bigger than what I thought it would be. So do you feel like the Guatemalan population has gotten much bigger in Tennessee, specifically Middle Tennessee, since you've gotten here? Yes, because growing up, I did not know very many Guatemalans. I was I lived in Laverne. So if you ever have been to Laverne in early 2000s, it was not filled with a lot of Guatemalans. Um, I think now it is. Um, we've seen a lot of pockets like Madison and uh, Smyrna Laverne. Um, so the community has grown immensely. Now you can find like Guatemalan bakeries, 
which I have to say the first like 10 years of my life were completely without bandulce. Um, so now we're getting into the phase where, yeah, there's a Guatemalan restaurant and a Guatemalan bakery and I can eat at these three places. What's your favorite Guatemalan bakery? I am really biased because I don't really love pan dulce. I'm not big on pan dulce, but there's one type of um, like a cookie that I'm just completely obsessed with. And it's called a champurrada. It's just like this big cookie. And I've gotten to many Guatemalan bakeries and the different types of bakeries trying to find one. And I can't find one that's good. Like really good, like Guatemala or like even California. I have an uncle out there and he just mails them to me. <laughs> the, there's one on Nolansville. I think that's oh, okay. pretty good. You can always count on something being in Nolansville. Exactly. <laughs> Basically. If you went to Nolansville, you feel like you, <laughs> you went out of the country. <laughs> that was, Nolansville was Mexico for me. Because I have <laughs> yeah. no recollection of it. I'm like, oh, right. This is Mexico. <laughs> Mines are in Spanish? What? So did you live in Laverne since you got to the U.S.? Have been in Middle Tennessee since or did you move around? Good question with an interesting story. So um, when we first got here, by we, I mean my sister and I, and um, I think an aunt and a grandma, we came to Arizona. And then from Arizona, we were with my uncle in California. He lives in L.A. Um, We were there for like couple months and then Tennessee just Tennessee um until um I was about eight and then we moved to Kentucky which is I have a lot of feelings about Kentucky um (laughs) it's not for me personally and then we just came back to Tennessee and I've lived in Tennessee my whole life in Nashville specifically um but I'm moving soon to Columbia Tennessee and if you've ever been to Columbia there's not really much out there Um, girl I went to Martin Methodist College in Pulaski beside Columbia so I can tell you I need the knowledge Uh, what can you tell me if you can tell me of a good bakery that's all that's all I need no there's this taco uh this taco place in Columbia I think it's called Los Potros it's great perfect I'll send write it down send me the address that's all I need yeah it's so fun. The, probably like the two out of three taco places are there. Not much, oh, but but uh, that's exciting. Dulce, I don't know if you want to talk about how you met Vanessa. Basically, I'm a part of ECE, which is Equal Chance for Education. And Vanessa works with them. And essentially, that's what helps me go to school. So can you explain a little bit for those who may not know what ECE is? Like I said, I work for Equal Chance for Education, which is basically an organization that was started about seven years ago um, that helps first-generation college students, specifically DACA and undocumented students, go to college, higher education. Um, And they do that through um, scholarships. And so my job, my title is program coordinator. So I do a lot of the programming um, and that looks like different types of seminars, whether that be career seminars or Um, we've done some DACA renewals, um, and that also looks like mentoring. We have some mentor, um, programs that we've rolled out this year, uh, and just like kind of all kinds of programming. Um, and it's all based on what students want. Um, so people have told me that they want something to help nurses and how to do, uh, the NCLEX and how to get into nursing nursing school. And I did not study anything about nursing, so I had to figure that out. And so that's just my job is to help 
students figure out what they need to be successful. Like I said, Dolce is part of it. She's a sophomore and our cousin Stephanie was part of it. And she just graduated from Cumberland University. When I graduated in 2013, Dulce was a tiny wee baby. And back then, ECE was not a thing. And it would have been so nice. Because if you can explain a little bit of why ECE is even mm-hmm. needed, especially kind of in Tennessee. Yeah. So you're right. ECE was started in 2014. And it started with one person. Um, and so the story goes is that the founder, his name is Dr. Spalding, he met a young woman or he knew a young woman for most of her life who couldn't access higher education because she had DACA. Because we live in Tennessee, uh, Tennessee does not have in-state tuition um, for any student who isn't, uh, who doesn't qualify for PASPA. And so if you don't qualify for PASPA, i.e. being undocumented or having DACA, you cannot access higher education. Um, And so you have to pay out-of-state tuition, which is uh, up to three times as much. So this young lady, um, she was looking at going to a community college for, I think, $28,000 a year. <laughs> um, so for community college, that's, you know, insane. And so Dr. Spalding met her and was like, I'll help you pay for it for your first year at Lipscomb. And then he met another student and was like, all right, here's another one. Um, and we just grew and grew. And now we serve over 300 students across Tennessee. So over 300, that's amazing. That is crazy. And to think that there's so many more out there who don't know about it. I know. Yeah. I've talked to a lot of parents just this year, this application round, just being like, oh, I didn't know. Like, how do I get my students involved? And I'm like, like, I feel for you and I want you to get in. And so I'm constantly trying to do outreach with specifically parents to get their kids involved and enrolled. And because of the pandemic, we weren't able to like go to high schools or um, like do in-person events, which is where we get a lot of students involved. So this year was kind of difficult, but we managed to bring on almost 100 new ECE scholars just for this next year. What are some of the challenges that you've had as program coordinator, you know, trying to get all of these events done for students? especially during a pandemic, that has to be hard. It has been hard. Um, We've seen, I think there's like two parts where um, some students feel like it's almost impossible to get the semester done um, because classes were shorter. um, Not everyone does well with online learning. um, And so their capacity for more was really limited. Um, So it was like very much a conversation or having to pick between like them being able to do their homework and like do well versus um, maybe going to like a seminar or some type of like activity like that. And, and I understood that. I understand that the capacity may not be there. Um, and also we have students who want it and who need it, who feel supported with these things, but also not being able to do it in person and not being able to meet students is really difficult, right? And there are people who I'm like, I want to get to know them. And it doesn't feel as like the connection isn't always there. So it's kind of like a two-part thing. Being in school as a DACA student or like a documented student is super hard. So I guess mm-hmm. I'm wondering um, if you can tell us a little bit about like when you got DACA and that what was, what was that like? And also like what was college, the college experience like for you? Ooh, yeah. Okay. So I, so DACA was announced in 2012. 
and I was maybe like 16. And so I didn't get DACA and my older sister didn't get, didn't get DACA until we were in 2013. It came with this awkward conversation of like, oh, like you're undocumented, but you don't really know what that means. Um, for me, at least, like I knew that it was a thing, but I didn't know what it meant. Right. Like the limitations of it. Like I, I give this, this example of like, oh, I knew I was worried about my parents driving, but I didn't really understand why. Right. And so that was the reality. And I had an older sister who already knew she was in school already. And so it was easier for me, I think, individually to navigate being a first generation college student because I had an older sister who went through it. At the same time, it was also financially very difficult and difficult to understand my limitations as a whole, right? And and it feels weird to say that, like limitations as a doctor student, when it at times didn't feel like I had any. But in reality, it's like, yeah, like it's not like I can go on a mission trip, which is common in at Trevaca and schools like that. I couldn't apply to financial aid. I couldn't just do all these things that I felt other people were doing, right? I didn't start driving until I was 18 <laughs> because of my DACA, right? So that was just like what I experienced. And like now working with DACA students and like students who are just undocumented, I'm like, I understand. I was there. Like I went through that. Like I was in ECE when I was at Trebekah. So the process of finding it, it changing my trajectory is amazing and also really puts in perspective that there are people who didn't and who don't find it. What were some challenges that you faced as a like a Latino college student or maybe like the biggest challenge you faced when you were in school and what, mm-hmm. what were some things that kind of helped you get through? I think that there were multiple individual challenges that felt like one really big one. I think what comes to mind immediately is imposter syndrome like feeling like I didn't belong in spaces um which was always really big for me of like being okay with taking up space and also the cultural aspect of like expectations of being a woman and Latina right parents can be weird about you being in school and like staying late and studying and doing all these things and like did you, your did you live in Trebeca or did you live with your parents I lived with my with my mom so that those two are really big challenges in me of like simultaneously feeling like I had this pressure to be a college student and like be the best and fullest college student while also at home feeling like no I can't Um, so that was a really big challenge and I think like I just worked through it and talked to other people because I went to a school that had other DACA documented folks and undocumented folks like I was able to be like do you feel like this too (laughs) because a lot of them did you know, I think that really helped me like finding community, um, which has always been really big for me was making and finding community and um, just sharing my experience. You know, it's a big advantage to have DACA, but do you find it that sometimes like, the past feelings come back when you see these ECE kids kind of going through the same things or same uncertainties? Yes, that's true of like me being like, oh, we're the same. Um, I'm like you. Because I'm part of this community, I want it to be as like the best it can be. And so if that means me putting in work in something and and educating and advocating, then I'm going to do it, right? Because I'm directly affected, it genuinely 
makes me invested. Right? And so like the long-term implications of my work mean a lot to me. You know, I I know I tend to kind of like be like, yeah, they're DACA, they're undocumented and people are really like heartbroken about it. And I'm like, yes, absolutely. And there's work to be done. There's more, right? Like I understand that someone is not just their status, that people are more than that. So I think, yes, it does put it in perspective, especially when I work with people who are undocumented of like my own privilege but it also makes me be like i need to i need to step it up i need to do more um because there are people out here doing such amazing work and i can't be like oh you know i have such a buy-in i have to that's that's true like we literally sometimes can't stop gotta remind ourselves to take a break because we're going through the same things um and i don't think i asked you what did you major in Ooh, um, so I majored in, I was originally an English major, which was a whole, a whole thing because I wanted to go into like publishing. That was not for me. And I changed it to social justice and I minored in public policy because I wanted to go to law school. Um, and then I graduated and I was like, mm, maybe not. Um, and then I started working for an attorney. And I think my views on law school have changed. It's not that I don't want to do it anymore because I do, but I just think that right now is not the time for me. That's what I majored in. And it caused me to do a lot of different things. I got involved in a lot of like organizing. I did a lot of community organizing um, and did like grassroots work here locally. And also I used to work for like United We Dream. I used to work for uh, Workers' Dignity here locally. Um, so I've just kind of like been in some different nonprofits and done a whole bunch of work that's all been community-based. Um, so I have a very serious buy-in with community. That's awesome. We just need more people like you to be able to do everything because there literally is so much work to do. And I think, you know, especially in like, sometimes we don't know each other. I mean, in Tennessee, we just don't know who's doing what and it's good to know who's out there doing the work. Dulce, do you have anything before we close out? Thanks for doing this. Obviously, you <laughs> didn't have to. <laughs> Thanks for showing up. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, for, yeah. Thanks for answering back. <laughs> no, I loved it. I really appreciate it. Everyone yeah. listens to their podcast. Yeah, thank you so much. And I'm so excited to see what other work you do in the future. And um, yeah, just thank you for talking to us today. Thank you both. I really appreciate it. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure to share it and leave us a review. If you have a story you would like to share regarding today's episode, email your story at menosmal.goodness at gmail.com for a chance to be featured on an episode. To hear more from us, head to our blog at www.menos-mal.com. This episode was written and edited by your hosts, Dulce Maciel and Cecilia Maciel Martinez. The theme music for this podcast is by Mario Martinez. This has been a Menos Mad podcast.